Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable human centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. You're listening to Bay Curious. I'm Olivia Allen Price. I was in middle school when I first heard about the Donner Party. And like a lot of kids, I was particularly interested in the gory details. A group of migrants traveling to California gets stuck in a surprise October snowstorm, then eat each other to survive. Given how long ago it all happened and how sensationalized the retelling of this story can be, it can feel pretty distant or even like a piece of fiction. But if you've ever been over Donner Pass, north of Lake Tahoe, you'll know this infamous disaster happened not so far from the San Francisco Bay Area. That's what made one listener write to Bay Curious with a question. My name is Afifa Twill, and I want to know how the Donner Party impacted the Bay Area. Today on Bay Curious, we're bringing you our Donner Party story, which first aired in two parts in October 2020. You'll hear it in one part today. We're re-airing this episode because we have a live event coming up on February 23rd, where you can learn more on the topic. I'll share more details about that a bit later, but for now, grab a warm blanket. We'll get started in just a moment. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Listener Afifa Tawil says she asked Bay Curious a question about the Donner Party because for a lot of her life, she didn't actually think of it as a local story. But in many ways, it shaped California during a pivotal moment in our history. To understand how, we need to start at the very beginning. Reporter Carly Severn. The story of the Donner Party has to start with the land they risked everything to reach almost two centuries ago, California. They came to claim this place, but this wasn't empty land. Before European colonization, California was home to an estimated 300,000 indigenous people, from the Washoe tribe of the area around Lake Tahoe to the Ohlone in what is now San Francisco. The wider Bay Area alone was home to many long-standing tribes with incredibly diverse cultures and languages. First, I'd like to introduce uh, myself in our Miwok language, so uh, Michuxus. Dalton Brown. Hello, good day. My name is Dalton Brown. Dalton is a member of the Wilton Rancheria tribe outside Sacramento. His ancestors, the Miwok and Nisanan people of this region, are a part of the Donner Party story that often gets left out. It was their land that settlers were trying to reach. It was a bountiful, bountiful place where communities were free to trade, uh, free to interact hundreds of thousands and millions of acres of space to provide for our communities, and, and really uh, no, no restrictions on, on existence. And into this land traveled people like the Donner Party, white migrants, settlers, who came from the Midwest and walked over these mountains in the 1800s on their way to make new lives here in California. Long before the railroad, before gold even, these settlers made the journey with animals and wagons full of everything they owned. And the California they were traveling to wasn't actually part of the United States then. In 1846, this was Mexico. This area was known as Alta California and wouldn't become officially part of the U.S. for another four years. So back then, what made these migrants think they could just pack up, relocate their entire families and everything they owned, and have this land for their own? 
Greg Palmer is the resident expert at the museum that now stands at the site of the Donner Party horror up in the Sierras. I've been a Donner Party historian since 1992. And he says the answer to why they came is simple. This is the era of manifest destiny. Uh, President James Polk has propagated the idea that it's our divine right and duty to build the country coast to coast after the Louisiana Purchase. The notion that this land was home for the indigenous people who'd lived here for centuries, or that it was legally Mexican territory, none of this concerned these self-styled pioneers. They saw an escape from unfavorable situations in their own homelands and real estate opportunities. There's a lot of disease, cholera, malaria. A lot of people got sick and died. So many people prior to gold were moving west for a more healthful environment. The Donner Party wasn't just one family called Donner. It was a blended bunch of multiple families, plus some lone travelers, all bound together on a journey of over 1,000 miles west, joining many other migrants and traveling in one long, snaking party of wheels and livestock along what was called the Oregon Trail, through the grasslands of Illinois, across the desert, and finally over the mountains into California. That year of travel, 1846-47, literally opened the floodgates of people coming to California, and this is still before Gold Rush. But that same season, hundreds of wagons and thousands of people made the trip. There was a Donner family, two brothers, George and Jacob Donner, and their many kids. You might have also heard this called the Donner-Reed Party, and that's because there was a Reed family, James and Margaret Reed and their children. On top of them, you had the Breen family from Ireland, the Graves clan, the Keysburg family. They'd all either set out together or wound up teaming up on the road together. But the majority of the Donner Party weren't the hard-scrabble travelers you might be conjuring in your mind. In the 1840s, to go overland to California or Oregon, you know, poor people couldn't do it. They couldn't afford it. Aside from the hired hands along for the ride, these families on the trail had money and land already. They just wanted more of it. So if there were a lot of folks making this journey west that year, what made the Donner Party different? Put simply, they were the only travelers on the trail in spring 1846 who collectively decided not to follow the trusted path into California with all of those others, but to take a chance on a new route. By 1846, migration west had become an industry, and any industry attracts its grifters. One of those was a guy called Lansford Hastings. He'd written a guide to making the journey into California that told travelers of a cutoff a shortcut he promised would save them weeks. The problem? This route was a scam, based on guesswork. Hastings' guide only recommended it because it would divert travelers into places where he had money-making schemes set up to profit off them. The so-called Hastings cutoff, which he had never been on when he wrote the book, uh, turned out, instead of a shortcut, cutting out three to 400 miles added 30 days to the journey of the Donners because they had to hack the road themselves. And the thing was, they were already too late. Hastings' terrible guide had gotten one thing right. In order not to cross the Sierra Nevada in the snow, any travelers needed to leave the Midwest at the right time. As Hastings wrote, Unless you pass over the mountains early in the fall, you are very liable to be detained by impassable mountains of snow until the next spring or perhaps forever. By the time members of the Donner Party left, they were already three weeks late. As the last wagons on the trail, their fate was sealed. And this is the thing about the Donner Party that you might not know. This band of travelers was a mess even before they reached any snow. The extra weeks and miles on their journey meant they were already running out of food, says Greg Palmer. In addition to hacking the road through the Wasatch Mountains, they had to cross the Great Salt Lake Desert, which purportedly, by Hastings, was 40 miles. It was 80 miles. It took them over a week to get across it, and they lost 
countless number of cattle and oxen and livestock. The oxen are the engines pulling your wagons. People were dying before they even reached the Sierras. As the Donner Party desperately pulled their wagons over steep rock, 19th century road rage kicked in. And James Reed shot another man dead. For this, Reed was banished, released into the wilderness to make his own way to California without his family who stayed behind. But this isn't the last we'll be hearing of James Reed in this saga. Reed wasn't the only one to leave the wagon trail. When it became clear that things were already going very wrong, two other men were sent out ahead of the wagons and all those people. Their mission was to get supplies to bring back to the desert, at a place where Sacramento is now called Sutter's Fort, ruled over by a man called John Sutter, a man who you'll hear about in this Donner Party story again and again. If his name is familiar to you, he's the colonizer from Switzerland whose statue in Sacramento was torn down in 2020. Sutter's Fort, his giant ranch, was his miniature empire, and it represented the kind of opportunity that the Donner Party hoped to find in the California sun. But to the indigenous people whose land he'd claimed, Dalton Brown's own Miwok and Nisanan ancestors, this place held only loss and pain. Indigenous people were resources to be used for the benefit of others. Sutter first courted the local people to work at his fort, and when he met those who wouldn't, he brutally forced them into what a visiting settler called a complete state of slavery. You know, the man burnt down uh, Miwok and Nissanon roundhouses as a way of motivating people to work harder. Um, and, you know, that's the equivalent of burning down somebody's church. When the two men from the Donner Party reached Sutter's Fort, they were given those life-saving supplies to take back to the rest of the party in the desert. And because John Sutter liked to flex his power to white visitors, he also sent two young Miwok men from the fort with them to help take the supplies back to the Donner Party and to stay with them. Their names, given to them when they were converted to Catholicism by the Spanish missionaries, were Luis and Salvador. We don't know much about them, or whether they labored by choice at Sutter's Fort. Their story often gets lost in the Donner Party saga. But given what happened to them next, we're going to follow their story. The food Luis and Salvador helped deliver back to the desert from John Sutter saved the Donner Party. And after multiple weeks in the baking heat, this hungry group finally reached the granite cliffs of the Sierra Nevada, just as it was starting to snow. This exhausted crew of 81 people rested where Reno is now and then edged slowly towards where Truckee now lies, far too slowly. It could be said that if they rested up for four or five days in Reno, down the hill from us, had they left one day earlier, they might have made it. Because here, this group filled with families with young children was attacked by a shockingly early snowstorm that kept piling snow as high as 15 feet deep on the ground around them. And it wouldn't stop. You might have been in a place like Tahoe when bad weather hits, but the snowstorms most of us have seen in our lives are nothing compared to what the Donner Party saw in October 1846. It was snow that literally buried them where they stood. And when they realized they could not go any further, they made camp at the place where Donner Memorial State Park now lies, by Donner Lake, right below Interstate 80. But a quarter of them, including the Donner family themselves, were stuck miles behind at a place called Alder Creek. So even though the party is the Donner Party and this is Donner Lake, they didn't even make it this far. That snow lasted for days. And this is when the real ordeal began. The Donner Party started desperately constructing shelter from the elements. Some had the strength to fashion rough cabins, but in the unbelievable conditions, others managed nothing more than lean-to tents. 
couple of sticks laid up against the trunk of a tree and then put buffalo robes and canvas over those. The families of the Donna Party built their cabins and shelters startlingly far apart. After six months of chaos and violence on the trail, these people were sick of the sight of each other. So by this time, there's no love lost between the families. It's every family out for themselves, the hell with anybody else. Already running dangerously low on provisions, the travelers trapped in the snow killed the last of their oxen for food, eating first the meat and then their hides. A few attempted to travel through the snow to the other side of the mountain, but the snow was just too deep. The patriarch of the Breen family, Patrick Breen, started keeping a diary. It's the only first-person account of the Donner Party horror written at the time that's seen the light of day. Snowing fast. Snow higher than the shanty. Must be 13 feet deep. Don't know how to get wood this morning. It's dreadful to look at. A true battle for survival had begun. And all around them, as the days turned to weeks, the freezing snow just kept coming. Provisions getting very scant. People getting weak, living on short allowance of hides. The camps were filled with children of all ages, enduring one of the most traumatic events imaginable. Eliza Donner was the youngest child in the Donner family, and she was only three years old at the time. She survived and eventually wrote a memoir of the terrible isolation up there in the Sierras. Oh, it was painfully quiet some days in those great mountains and lonesome upon the snow. The pines had a whispering homesick murmur, and we children had lost all inclination to play. Inside their makeshift cabins, where families huddled, weakened by hunger to escape the elements, it was dark and increasingly fetid, especially when people started to die. Days at a time, sequestered in the cabins, you can use your imagination and imagine just how gross that was. You know, from sanitary things to a corpse laying in the corner over there. After a month and a half, it became clear that if anyone was going to survive, someone needed to go for help. So in mid-December of 1846, a band of the strongest people in the Donner Party strapped on makeshift snowshoes said goodbye to their families and hiked away high onto the peaks above Donna Lake to cross the mountains. With them were Luis and Salvador, the two Miwok men that John Sutter had delivered into this grueling ordeal. And if things at the camps were bad, things out there, fully exposed to the elements, got so much worse very quickly. The first occurrence of the cannibalism didn't happen here or at Alder Creek. It happened on the snowshoe trek going over the mountains. This small party desperately pressed on with bleeding feet, virtually blinded by the glare of the snow. One by one, they began to die. And because it was way too far to turn back, for the first time, the famished, freezing snowshoe party started to talk about the possibility of sustaining themselves on human flesh. And when a third man died, the remaining survivors finally took that step, stripped his bones for flesh, and began to eat it. And here's the thing. You'll often hear people say that as horrible as the cannibalism of the Donner Party was, at least they only ate the flesh of folks who'd already died and never killed anyone for food. But unfortunately, that's not true. And as Dalton Brown of Wilton Rancheria reminds us, it all comes down to who gets to write history. The way the story has been shaped and evolved over time, it really shows you where... Uh, emphasis was placed when it came to human life. When the snowshoe party started to eat their dead, accounts confirm Luis and Salvador were the only ones to refuse, even though they themselves were dying of hunger. And that was culturally taboo and an absolute 
no. So when they refused and said, no, I, we're not eating that, obviously they became weaker. Seeing their strength waning, that's when one of the men in the Donna party murdered Luis and Salvador with his gun so that the rest of the party could eat their bodies and keep themselves alive. While John Sutter thought he was sending a couple people up there to, to help this party get down, he was, he was sending them up there as, as a sacrifice, with a, whether or not he knew it. And they were treated as no different than any animal the party may have come across. Um, and it, it's just incredible to me to reflect on that and think that that rationale was sound in their mind as a reason to take those two lives. In the 1990s, a historian called Joseph King used records at Mission San Jose, where he believed Luis and Salvador had been converted. From this, he believes that Salvador might have been a Miwok of the Kasumne tribelet, whose birth name was Yuan, and that he'd have been around 28 years old when he was murdered. King believed Luis might have been an Okahamne Miwok, with the birth name Iimo, and that he was just 19 when he was killed for food. These men's story deserves to be told, and even finding historical records who these men were, which villages they came from, is, is almost impossible now. They've, they've really almost been erased from history. Having gained food from murder, after over 30 days on the mountain, the survivors of the Snowshoe Party had the strength to finally stagger into the valley below. And the first people they saw, the ones who helped these half-dead survivors, giving them food and shelter, were people from the Miwok village they stumbled into, who had no idea the party they were helping had murdered and eaten two of their own people just days before. And it's something that our, our communities and the state, the, the nation at large, really need to have a reckoning with, how do we tell these stories? Once the survivors made it to John Sutter's fort, news of the disaster spread like wildfire. A rescue had to be mounted, but ensuring the safe return of that many people would cost money. An open letter from Sutter's fort asking for help was written to the people of San Francisco, and it was read aloud in the dining room of one of the city's hotels. Pre-gold, San Francisco was not a big town, and some of those people listening to that letter had actually been on the emigrant trail with the Donner Party before they took that fateful cutoff. As Eliza Donner wrote in her memoir, to these folks safe and warm in that hotel, this glimpse into what might have been their fate was horrifying. The misfortunes which had since befallen the party seemed incredible. While San Francisco was digging into its pockets, remember James Reed, the guy who'd shot and killed a man on the trail and been banished from the wagon party? His exile had saved his life. He'd made his way safely to California, knowing his wife and children were running out of food fast. And now he was fundraising for a rescue mission too. Meanwhile, back at Sutter's Fort, a tiny ragtag rescue party was scrambled and sent up into the mountains first. But by the time they finally reached the camps in February 1847, 13 people there had already died. And the people they found still living were essentially living under the snow, says Greg at Donna Memorial State Park. The cabin stood maybe 10 feet high. So 13, 15 feet of snow, the cabins were buried. What they saw were plumes of smoke coming out of a hole in the snow. And their first human contact was a woman crawling up out of a hole in the snow, kind of like coming out of a gopher hole. One of the men in that rescue party remembered how a gaunt, delirious woman asked him, are you men from California or do you come from heaven? That first rescue party was just seven men. All they could do was distribute a little food among the survivors and then lead the ones who could walk out of the camps. But this was no medevac to safety. This was the start of a days-long march over the mountains through snowdrifts as high as buildings. In these desperate conditions and still lacking enough food, several of them died on the rescue route. Back at the camps, the members of the Donner Party left behind returned despondently to their rotting, dark cabins. Eliza Donner, one of those left, recalled the desperation for food, any food. 
The little field mice that had crept into camp were caught then and used to ease the pangs of hunger. Even the bark and the twigs of pine were chewed in the vain effort to soothe the gnawings which made one cry for bread and meat. And then, in Patrick Breen's diary, comes the first mention of cannibalism at the camp, after the death of a young man named Milt. Friday, February 26th, 1847. Mrs. Murphy said here yesterday that she thought she would commence on Milt and eat him. In her memoir, Eliza Donner confirmed the fact that the flesh of the dead was used to sustain the living. But not, she said, until mothers had watched their children eat the very last of the food the first rescue team had brought them. And until wolves had dug up the bodies of the Donner Party's dead that were buried beneath the snow. Perhaps God sent the wolves to show Mrs. Murphy, and also Mrs. Graves, where to get sustenance for their dependent little ones. Was it culpable or cannibalistic to seek and use the only life-saving means left them? It was two weeks until a second rescue party arrived, led by none other than James Reed, who'd finally raised the cash and found enough men in San Francisco to retrieve his family. This time, 17 people were evacuated, leaving only a few of the Donner Party behind. This included most of the Donner family themselves at their creek camp, which had become a horrific site of death and bodies. Another two weeks later, a third rescue party arrived and evacuated the remaining Donner children, including Eliza. After surviving being stuck in an incredible blizzard, right where Sugar Bowl Ski Resort is now, Eliza recalls reaching the safety of the Sacramento Valley five months after they'd first been stranded in the Sierras. There, we caught the first breath of springtide, touched the warm, dry earth, and saw green fields far beyond the foot of that cold, cruel mountain range. Only a handful of the Donner Party were now left behind at the camps, walking skeletons kept barely alive by human flesh. The ones who'd either been too weak to travel or refused to leave, like Eliza Donner's own mother, who wouldn't leave her sick husband and watched her children depart without her. The very last rescuers who made it to Donner Lake in April 1847 were really only making the journey for the salvage. After almost half a year of survival by 81 people, the landscape that greeted these rescuers was one of total horror. Body parts, including heads, were reportedly strewn around the snow. They found one last survivor, injured and completely alone up there. This was a man called Louis Kiesberg, whose family had been brought out by the first rescue party two months before. Although the rescuers couldn't help noticing that Kiesberg was now in possession of a great deal of the Donner family's goods and coins. Kiesberg was half dragged out of the camp along the same frozen path to freedom his family had taken weeks before, a path he didn't know his little girl had actually died on. Stopping to rest, he saw a piece of cloth sticking up from the snow, says Greg at Donna Memorial State Park. So he grabs it with both hands and he yanks it, and he exhumes the body of his own daughter, who had died with the rescue party going out earlier. It's a ghastly ending to a horrific saga. But as the last of the Donner Party was brought down from the mountains and a silence settled over Donner Lake once more, California's dark reckoning with this disaster and what it would reveal was only just beginning. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night 
knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. When the snows of spring finally melted, the horrible things that had stayed buried under feet of snow up here at Donner Lake began to be revealed in full, says Donner Party Museum historian Greg Palmer. So everything's laying around on the ground. The people in California now know this tragedy has occurred. They are still trying to encourage their cousins and nephews and uncles back in the States to come to California. But now it's a little more challenging because of the tragedy that occurred here. You know, big black headlines, it's lousy PR. And so they wish they could just wipe the slate clean. God, we gotta make this thing go away. The solution for California officials was a band of soldiers who were sent up to Donner Lake on a mission to take care of the mess. A writer called Edwin Bryant went with them, and what he later wrote about that day was stomach-churning. Near the principal lake cabin, I saw two bodies entire, except the abdomens had been cut open and entrails extracted. Their flesh had been either wasted by famine or evaporated by exposure to dry atmosphere and presented the appearance of mummies. Bryant and those soldiers were looking at what remained of the Donner Party. And according to Bryant, what was left, what the snow and wind and hungry wildlife hadn't claimed, was the evidence of sheer desperation. What it looks like when human bodies are stripped for food. Strewn about the cabins were dislocated and broken skulls, in some instances, sawed asunder with care for the purpose of extracting the brains. Human skeletons, in short, in every variety of mutilation. That military party scraped all the remains they could find from the forest floor and dug a hole in one of the cabins. And then, says Bryant, they set fire to the whole thing. A more appalling spectacle I have never witnessed. These soldiers weren't just performing a physical cleanup job. They were taking a truly shameful part of the state's history and erasing it from sight. This new California demanded it. If you're enjoying this episode so far, consider coming out on February 23rd for an event called Endless Winter Inside the Donner Party Disaster. It's a live onstage event at KQED's headquarters in San Francisco's Mission District. The atmospheric stage show will include music, immersive storytelling, and theatrical performances. Buy tickets online at kqed.org live. Bay Curious events have always sold out, so act quickly to be sure you get your spot. Again, that's at kqed.org slash live. In the place just outside Truckee, where the Donner Party made their makeshift cabins and weathered unrelenting snowfall, there's now a museum set under trees in a serene state park. It tells the story of the Donner Party and all the people who walked over these mountains in the 1800s to make new lives in California. But back in 1847, after the last Donner Party survivors had been rescued from this place, people weren't quite so eager to remember. Reporter Carly Severn. Many of the survivors spent the immediate aftermath recovering in present-day Sacramento at Sutter's Fort, that same settlement which had acted as something of a Donner Party rescue command center during those long winter months. There had already been a lot of public interest in the Donner saga once those first survivors had escaped, says Greg Palmer. The fact that it wasn't just a bunch of mountain men, fur trappers and all that, but these were women and children. And of course, the the kicker is the fact that it was cannibalism. Like many people who suddenly find themselves at the center of terrible events... 
Donner Party survivors found other people were already writing their story for them. When the last survivor was rescued from Donner Lake, the California Star newspaper published an account it claimed was based on eyewitness testimony from the rescuers. And what was in it set the stage for the demonization of the Donner Party. A more shocking scene cannot be imagined. A woman sat by the side of the body of her dead husband, cutting out his tongue, the heart she had already taken out, broiled and eaten. It casts the Donner Party as terrifying ghouls, so hooked on the taste of humans that they'd somehow been transformed by it into cannibalistic monsters. So changed had the emigrants become that when the rescuing party arrived with food, some of them cast it aside and seemed to prefer the putrid human flesh that still remained. A lot of what was published in the California Star is undoubtedly sensationalized or just flat out wrong. But this story, published hot on the heels of the disaster, set the tone for how California looked at the Donner Party, and it haunted the survivors for years. Eliza Donner was one of the children of the Donner family and was just three years old when she escaped the Sierras. Both her parents and many more of her family died in those mountains. In later life, Eliza wrote a memoir. It details what she remembered of the disaster, but it's also about her life as a Donner Party survivor. She said for years, people came up to her and quoted that newspaper story and told her how much she and her family had degraded themselves in the Sierras. Evidently, it was written without malice, but in ignorance, and by some warmly clad, well-nourished person who did not know the humanizing effect of suffering and sorrow. A lot of the public outcry was directed at one man, the very last person rescued from the Donner Party, Louis Kiesberg. You'll remember how his rescuers noticed that Kiesberg, all alone at Donner Lake, was holding on to a lot of the Donner family's coins and possessions when they found him. And because Eliza Donner's own mother had been alive when the previous rescue group had left her, Rumors began that Kiesberg hadn't just stolen her money up there. They said he'd murdered and eaten her, and that he'd boasted about making soup from human bones. So from almost the moment he came down from the mountain, Kiesberg was a marked man. Some declared him crazy. Others called him a monster, wrote Eliza, who knew how fast and how well the written word could be mobilized against someone? Blood-curdling editorials increased public sentiment against Kiesberg, stamping him with the mark of Cain and closing the door of every home against him. But all the while, another man, the only actual confirmed murderer within the Donner Party, received quite different treatments. Remember, the first cannibalism happened not at Donner Lake, but when a band of the strongest Donner Party members strapped on DIY snowshoes and made a break for it across the mountains. Two young Miwok men who were traveling with the Donner Party, called Luis and Salvador, were with them. And when supplies ran out on the journey, one man shot and killed those two so that the others could eat their bodies. That man was called William Foster. And because of who he'd killed, two Native Americans rather than a white woman like Eliza's mother, Foster never faced a reckoning for his crime. As Greg Palmer says, it wasn't even seen as a crime. Uh, William Foster was never charged when they got to California. In the 1840s, it wasn't a crime to kill an Indian. They're only Indians, so that was the mentality of the day. Foster had even joined the rescue party to voluntarily return to Donner Lake and bring more people to safety. To the white world in California, Foster was a hero, not a murderer. And condemning what Foster did, 
It would have meant condemning a mindset and a way of life that had greatly benefited many people who came to California to claim it for their own. And many more were about to make the journey. As dramatic as the Donna Party's life and death story was, the immediate aftermath actually marks this moment in time in California history that was like the calm before the storm. In the short term, what happened to the Donner Party scared people. Greg says that for aspiring emigrants contemplating the same trip, it was a cautionary tale. The overland immigrant traffic dropped down to almost zero. There were a couple that made it, but the vast majority didn't because of what happened. Then in January 1848, just nine months after Lewis Kiesberg was dragged off the mountain, gold was discovered in California. And those small flakes of gold in a river changed California forever. And most of all, for those that had lived here for centuries. And, and it's just incredible that indigenous people, indigenous to this land, could go from being the ancestral stewards of a place since time immemorial to all of a sudden just being a resource to be used for the uh, you know, kind of capitalistic growth and enrichment of an American society that hadn't even been on this continent established as a nation for 100 years. This is Dalton Brown, a member of the Wilton Rancheria tribe outside Sacramento. His ancestors, the Miwok and Nisenan people of this region, had made this land their home for hundreds of years. Settlers like the Donner Party wanted it. And now, with gold, everybody else did too. When white migration into California, which had been just a trickle, became a flood. You know, it was a seven, eight year period of time that saw over 300,000 49ers uh, rushing to this geographic area where I sit now, um, looking to make their, their wealth. Earlier colonizers had already hugely disrupted the lives of California's indigenous residents. But it's believed that in just those first 20 years after gold was discovered, 80% of California's indigenous population was wiped out, not just by disease, but by destruction and murder. Those that survived found themselves displaced and their customs and cultures and very lives irrevocably altered by design. There were insane restrictions put on our tribal communities that were meant to suffocate our life ways, but also to rob our communities and land to make way for these miners and for these folks looking to make their, their riches really at the uh, detriment of our indigenous communities. California had a new self-image, a new way of being. And everything that came before that didn't fit that self-image was treated like dirt in the gold pan, to be discarded in the name of progress. As California bloomed under the gold rush, virtually all of the survivors of the Donner Party quietly, deliberately retreated from view. For almost all of them, what happened up by Donner Lake was something they never wanted to talk about publicly, or even with their families, says Donner historian Greg Palmer. I, I guess you could call it a code of silence. It, remembering that this is the Victorian era, and so, you know, speaking of anything that's very personal, particularly something as taboo as eating the flesh of people, was just not done. And so the shameful stigma of it pervaded most of the members. So where did the survivors end up? If you're imagining they might have wanted to stick together, think again, says Greg. Uh, for the most part, they all went in all directions. Uh, they didn't all stay as a cohesive group once they got to California. Among so many families that entered those mountains, just two survived intact. One of those was the Reed family. And of all of the survivors, they probably made the best of it. Something you could chalk up to the fact that the Reed patriarch, James Reed, hadn't actually been trapped in the Sierras like his family was. Remember, he'd been banished from the Donner Party on the journey for killing a guy. 
James Reed got to California first. And while he was raising money to go rescue his wife and children, he also found time to do some land deals down in San Jose. The land where San Jose State University now lies, Reed bought that. So when the Reed family escaped, they relocated down to the new home awaiting them in the South Bay, where they settled into civic life with relative ease. After striking it rich in the gold rush, James Reed even became the chief of police in the San Jose Police Department. And into their home, they welcomed two of the Donner family orphans. The other survivors scattered more discreetly around Northern California. Petaluma, Sonoma, San Juan Bautista, Tamales Bay. After what happened and what people can do in the very worst of situations, many of them never felt any desire to even speak to other survivors ever again. So there were animosities that weren't forgotten. For three decades after the disaster, that was that. Until in 1878, a newspaper man up in Truckee got a taste for this part of his town's local lore and decided to track down the survivors to get their side of the story and write the first ever book about the Donner Party. He was particularly intrigued in the fate of Lewis Kiesberg, the reviled survivor who'd had cannibal yelled at him in the street. Kiesberg, it transpired, had gone on to live a truly miserable life, dogged by infamy, death, and sheer misfortune. He'd even sued people for labeling him a murderer, but the judge sneeringly awarded him damages of just one dollar in each case. That book author even urged Eliza Donner, then in her 30s, to meet with Lewis Kiesberg to give him the chance to confess if he really had killed her mother up at Donner Lake. Eliza agreed, and in her memoirs, she wrote how Kiesberg sank to the ground and said, On my knees before you and in the sight of God, I want to assert my innocence. If Kiesberg was lying, then he held on to his secrets for another 16 years, when he died aged 81, penniless in Sacramento. Eliza Donner lived many years more. She was born before the railroads, but lived to see the First World War and died in 1922, just before her 80th birthday. And 13 years after that, a woman named Isabel Breen died in the South Bay in 1935. She'd been just one year old when her family fought for their lives up at Donner Lake. And with her death the very last of the Donner Party survivors quietly left the earth. We humans like to make meaning from things. The idea that there are lessons to be found within history, even the bad bits, like quartz hiding in Sierra granite. And looking back at the Donner Party, yes, it's sometimes still treated like a pop culture punchline. The cannibalism, the grand plans gone spectacularly awry. But it's also seen by many as a kind of American tragedy. A group of questing pioneers in search of the California dream, cruelly denied, but it couldn't stop some of them prevailing. For Dalton Brown of the Wilton Rancheria tribe, the Donner Party saga tells a very different story about California and this nation as a whole. I think the Donner Party has this kind of this glorification of the American spirit and having to do what needed to be done in order to survive that has become pretty synonymous with the way that America treats itself. Like there's this idea that, well, if I got to step on a few necks to survive, then I'll do it. For Dalton... The Donner Party's drive to acquire, that zeal to stretch out, to grab more, it doesn't just prefigure the gold rush. It's America in a nutshell. I think that, you know, this idea of manifest destiny and, and American exceptionalism is that um, there is this God-given and inherently um, given right that American citizens have to colonize a place because, in their view, it is making it better. And the Donner Party disaster might kind of show us what happens 
when such an impulse isn't accompanied by a knowledge of the land you're coming to claim. Knowledge that the indigenous people who already lived here absolutely prized. As 81 people learned in the winter of 1846, this landscape, if you misjudge it, it can consume you whole. That was reporter Carly Severn. Yes, even after all of that, there's still a lot to the story that we had to leave out of this episode. If you want to learn more, come to KQED on February 23rd for our event, Endless Winter, Inside the Donner Party Disaster. Details and tickets at kqed.org slash live. This Big Curious episode featured a song created by Chairman Jesus Tarango Jr. of Wilton Rancheria and his mother and former chairwoman, Mary Tarango. Lena Blanco, Gabe Moline, and Mike Hanlon played the vocal parts of Eliza Donner, Edwin Bryant, and Patrick Breen. Rob Spate and Brendan Willard were our sound engineers. Big thanks to the people at Wilton Rancheria and Donner Memorial State Park for their guidance on this story. Thanks also to listener Afifa Tawil, who asked the question about the Donner Party that inspired this program. Big Curious is made by Amanda Font, Katrina Schwartz, Brendan Willard, and me, Olivia Allen Price. Our show is produced in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Thanks for listening. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hi there, I'm Randa Dirfattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.